With the news media reporting increasingly more data breaches and cybersecurity events, and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. We're here to help you prevent potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello, and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 79th episode of my show. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Play, Overcast, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. And also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. So then you will be notified just as soon as each new show is available. Also, I want to give out a big thank you for all my now 135,000 plus listeners throughout the world. I truly do appreciate you tuning in. My September Privacy Professor Tips message was published at the end of August. Please sign up for them. I've provided them free since 2007 in an effort to increase general awareness of information security and privacy issues and to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to send to their employees. You can sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com and submitting your email in the box in the upper right part of your screen. So today, I'm covering a topic that I've had many listeners send me messages and questions about since my show was launched in 2018, and it is long overdue for me to discuss this very important topic, which is using technology for surveillance of specific groups of individuals within the population. You know, using data gathered from organizations that most of us interact with often on a daily basis just to get basic services. I've actually contacted several of those types of organizations who have often been reported as sources of data that is used for surveillance over the past couple of years and I've invited them to speak with me on this show, but they either did not respond or they referred me to their privacy notices and policies on their websites, which basically left my questions unanswered. So here's something to think about. In 2017, an intercept investigation found that a new intelligence system called Investigative Case Management, or ICM for short, created by Palantir Technologies, was gathering data from a really wide range of U.S. federal and private law enforcement entities. And it was taking this data and creating really detailed profiles 
that were then used to track immigrants. That data would include such things as a person's immigration history, family relationships, personal connections and addresses and phone records and biometric traits and reportedly other information that would have had to have come from such sources as utilities and banks and other entities that have strict data protection and privacy regulations and laws with which they are supposed to be abiding. So, you know, I'm intrigued uh, and was intrigued and continue to be by this this information. I want to know how and why such data would be provided to a third party in this way from these types of entities, especially since, you know, I'd never given my consent for such sharing of my personal data. And certainly I don't know anyone else who has either. And I could not find any of those types of organizations with posted privacy notices that included information about such sharing, at at least not uh, in any specific statements. So I made many calls to to different organizations that have my data of this type, but none of them could really answer my questions. Well, then I learned about some research that Miente did about such data sharing. Today, I'm speaking with Jacinta Gonzalez, who is a senior campaign organizer with Miente, which is based in Phoenix, Arizona. Jacinta is uh, very knowledgeable and has a lot of experience, really a lot of real-world experience with the very real concern about how surveillance tech is being used to watch, track, and, and truly limit the lives of so many, not only within the U.S., but also worldwide. Now, prior to Miente, Jacinta worked at Poder in Mexico, organizing Rio Sonora River Basin committees against water contamination by the mining industry. Jacinta was the lead organizer for the New Orleans Workers Center for Racial Justice Congress of Day Laborers from 2007 to 2014. Please see even more about Jacinta Gonzalez in her bio that's posted with this show on my Voice America page. Jacinta, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, there's so much I have to ask ask of you today. And, you know, first I wanted, though, to provide a quote. I watched a panel that you were on earlier this year. And in this panel, you indicated that you have seen how, quote, tech and data companies are transforming immigration enforcement, making it not only more hostile and making it more aggressive, but also is expanding ICE's ability to not only surveil, detain, and deport, but also to act as a type of police force 
and an international surveillance agency, end quote. And just as an FYI to my international audience, ICE stands for Immigration and Customs Enforcement and is a, a U.S. government agency. So, Jacinta, from your experiences and research, what have you found to be the current practices being used involving tech to surveil or monitor specific groups of folks? Sure. So, you know, we we started to look into tech and data because, like you were saying, we started to see on the ground that the way that immigration agents were acting was changing. Um, you know, for ICE is a police force. It's important for us to understand it as that. It is a policing agency. Um, and, you know, their mission is to surveil, detain, and to deport people. But because they are always trying to expand their mission, right? And when we know is, for example, under this administration, um, you know, Trump has explicitly made sure that there is a policy of cruelty when it comes to immigration and that there is actually investing more resources into how much power this policing force has. Um, what we've started to see is that there has been a constant and consistent up, uh, uptick in immigration raids. These are raids that happen in neighborhoods. These are raids that happen where ICE agents will go door to door looking for people. We've seen you know, a 700% increase in workplace investigations and workplace raids. Um, for example, the one that happened in Mississippi not too long ago where almost 700 poultry plant workers were arrested and deported. Um, and so for all of these types of raids and operations, ICE actually needs to have more access to different types of information to then be able to go after people. And so for us, it was a huge question of where are they getting this information and how are they processing it and where are they storing it? And that's why we put out the report, Who's Behind ICE, the tech and data companies fueling deportations, where we were able to really account for and really show that in terms of cloud services, Amazon is the number one provider for ICE. When it comes to the data analytics, it's Palantir that's providing the integrated case management system that you described. And when we're talking about data and data brokers, it's actually companies like Thomson Reuters and RELX that are the primary data brokers that are working with companies like Palantir and ICE. So for us, it was important to do this research to be able to expose this kind of chain of companies that are really helping ICE um, go after our loved ones, our neighbors, um, and our community members. So that's very interesting about Amazon, because I think a lot of folks, when they think about Amazon, they think about, you know, shopping online, of course, that's what they've been doing the longest. But then, of course, there are the Amazon Alexas and Echoes. There's uh, Amazon Prime Video. And then, of course, there are is a very huge and lucrative um, managed service provider uh, business, sub-business under Amazon where there's, I mean, thousands if not hundreds of thousands of websites that are uh, basically hosted on those servers. So what kind of data, I mean, you know, I gave just a very broad overview of, of all these different types of services, but are there any one of those types of services where the data is coming from? Like maybe the 
the Amazon uh, Alexas or the MSPs? You know, we haven't seen any evidence of being able to link data that's created by Amazon to these systems. Uh, What we were able to uncover was actually that Amazon's business model, even though, like you're saying, a lot of us will think about, you know, Amazon's trying to keep data on us because they want to know what color shoes are going to be a better sale for us or what my favorite type of blender is. But what we actually have uncovered is that Amazon Web Services is a huge part and one of the most lucrative parts of their business um, and that they have actually been paying lobbyists since 2010 to be pushing different government agencies to use their cloud services. So even though we think of them as someone who's making money off of, you know, private consumers, actually the government is paying a big chunk of what their earnings are. And so even though companies like Amazon might not pay their fair share in taxes, that doesn't mean that they're against trying to get business deals where they will take that same money um, to line their pockets. So Amazon Web Services has for a while, you know, to to be able to provide cloud services for the government, you need what's called a FedRAMP authorization. Mm -hmm. And Amazon has been amassing those for a very long time, kind of leaving many of their competitors behind. So we know that this is an intentional strategy that they've been doing to try to hold that. And, you know, furthermore, we know that Amazon in general has been thinking about different ways of using their tools to be able to collaborate with local police departments. So, for example, one place that, you know, we are very concerned and have seen other organizations and the movement also take this on has been, for example, their ring doorbells. In many places... They actually have contracts with local police departments. I think they have over 1,400 contracts with police departments across the U.S. where they're sharing the information from the, 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 you know, from the, the doorbell to the police department. Wow. So you mentioned the reports, and I want to tell uh, the, the titles of those from Miente. There's a couple of reports. There was one entitled Who's Behind ICE, and that was from 2018, and then uh, the follow-up report in 2019 entitled The War Against Immigrants, Trump's Tech Tools Powered by Palantir. Um, But I guess for a lot of my listeners, they're probably going to be saying, well, surveillance tech tools have been used by the government for a very long time and came long before the current administration. So I'm wondering, maybe, you know, I have so many questions to ask about just what we were talking about, but I think it's, it's good at this point to just talk about maybe how you've seen that surveillance increased over the years and maybe even across different uh, administrations in the U S. Yeah. I mean, It is correct to say that ICE and different policing agencies have had access to surveillance tools for a long time now. Um, You know, we we will we we have talked about, for example, the Obama administration in terms of their policies on immigration. They really did build up a Cadillac for deportations. Right. They built up the um, communication infrastructure between local police departments and ICE. They built up tremendous amounts of detention centers. They, you know, introduced the use of ele- of ankle shackles or electronic shackles as a way of surveilling and, and keeping tabs on people. So that infrastructure is definitely has been around for a while. But what we've seen is kind of how one it's been turbocharged, 
particularly with a lot of these companies trying to get those contracts. And what we've also seen is a change in policy that has led to even more violation of human rights. And so for us, even though, yes, the surveillance has been there, the way that the surveillance is being, you know, is aiding human rights violations at this like level that at this scale has changed under this administration. Wow. Well, and let's kind of, and I'm glad you pointed that out. I think a lot of our listeners might not have realized that uh, over the years, all that's been going on. But you also mentioned Thomson Reuters. Now, what's what I find interesting, when I think of Thomson Reuters, I think of like uh, publishers and those who are creating like law and legal references. But what kind of data, uh, do you know what kind of data that they're providing um, with their tools that, that you're talking about? Yeah, you know, Thomson Reuters and RELX, um, like you said, by for many people, these are companies that are publishers or, you know, research tools for attorneys. Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact, they are data brokers. And they it is a very lucrative part of their business to be data brokers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the type of information that they are selling to companies like Palantir or to government agencies like ICE or to other local police departments is all sorts of utility data. All sorts of, you know, they, it, it seems to be from our research and we're looking more into this is that they get a lot of information, for example, from Equifax. So they're able to access all sorts of utility bills, all sorts of, you know, information about release dates for, from people from detention or, for example, court dates. So when we hear, for example, in New York of ICE agents showing up at courthouses to try to detain people, you know, it, it is possible that they're getting that information from places like Thomson Reuters and, and RELX. So that's why um, earlier this year, um, I'm sorry, late last year, we launched a legal sign-on letter from you know, law professors, attorneys, um, you know, law schools, law students that are signing on to these letters asking these companies to cut their contracts with ICE and Palantir knowing that they're contributing to the the surveillance, detention, and deportation of migrants right now. You know what really blows my mind is when you talk about how, like, Thomson Reuters and the others have access, uh, and Equifax, uh, how they're getting utility data. Because I never thought about, you know, utility data. And when you're talking about utility data, I'm not sure that you're actually talking about, you know, maybe electricity usage, but maybe the the bill, like location where our residences are and how much we're paying for our bills and, and stuff like that. Is that the type of data they're getting from utilities? You know, it's the, the one of the hardest parts about trying to uncover the surveillance network is that so much of it is obviously, you know, veiled in secrecy. Mm-hmm. So there's still things that we don't know. Oh, but okay. what we do know is that, you know, when ICE decides to do, for example, an operation and they decide that they're going to go and they're going to raid 100 people's homes, they have to have a way of confirming addresses. And so what we know is that Thomson Reuters actually has agents that work directly inside of ICE to help create these target lists that ICE then uses when they go on raids. 
And so what we're guessing is that they're using utility information to confirm people's addresses. So if your bill is in X, Y, or Z address and you have three bills in that address, then it's likely that that's where you are and that's where they go after you. Um, so people can see this, for example, there's a, a Netflix special immigration nation that just came out where folks can kind of see how ICE agents are going to people's homes. There's kind of the, the behind the scenes part of that, which is where Thomson Reuters agents are sitting down with the ICE agents to determine addresses. And we also have been working, for example, with folks in Austin, Texas, particularly a group called Grassroots Leadership that has been doing really amazing work there, where they were able to prove through a FOIA that ICE was actually getting information about people's addresses through their electricity bills. Um, and that is how they were deciding where to go. Um, and so, you know, that kind of puts immigrants in this impossible position of having to decide between having electricity for your family, um, you know, having a phone to be able to communicate with people and be able to work and operate um, and knowing that that information is being sold and sold and sold until it gets to the hands of, of companies like Thomson Reuters that then sells it to ICE. Wow. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that, how many, um, you know, leaps, if you will, from the originator of the data, which would be the utility or the water company or wherever, how many places from there it then gets shared to. And that's such an important part of, um, you know, important aspect of surveillance, certainly, but it's such an important part of, of privacy is just being told and being able to know who are you sharing my data with. And I think many listening right now would probably be very surprised to think that anyone beyond their utility uh, company has that data. I think that's something that I would certainly encourage them to look at the privacy notice on that website and even call them up and say, who do you share my data with? I mean, that's definitely something important. Equifax is something too uh, I want to maybe just hit upon a little bit because people think of Equifax and of course there's Equifax and TransUnion and, and you know, um, Oh, gosh, the other one's just not getting in my brain right now. But the three big credit reporting agencies, uh, they have so much data about everyone. But they all are supposed to have the option that you can ask them to not sell your data for, like, marketing purposes or other purposes. Does that help at all, or is that something that that you've looked into or maybe as a way to limit the type of data sharing that gets, um, you know, done through Equifax and the other CRAs? You know, this is definitely something that we're looking into. But again, you know, Equifax's business model is based off of selling the data. And so the harder they can make it to not give you, could not give them the data, the, the more business they can make, right? Like the more, the more lucrative their business is for them. And so what we're seeing is that, you know, there's just so many ways for the information to get out there and that the companies want to make it as, you know, hard as possible to not give them the information um, while making it as easy as possible to sell it. And, you know, I think there's also just concerns around what this brings up in terms of Fourth Amendment protections for people. 
mm-hmm. you know, this, this business model is really a way for ICE to go around the Constitution to be able to go after people. And because many times they, you know, detain and deport people without their day in court, they're able to get away with it. And so, you know, there's there's kind of this this hard thing where it's like, you know, if you were in a in a in a in in some types of context, you would be able to challenge this information being used against you. But because of how civil immigration law works, many times you don't even get that opportunity to challenge it. So it's it's not until it's too late that you understand what's been happening. Wow. Well, and certainly personal data is the new digital gold, right? I mean, it's it's so valuable. And certainly what you've been describing makes it very clear how motivated organizations are to provide that data out to so many different uh, other folks without really maybe uh, considering how they're going to use it. Do you know how, do you have any research about how lucrative or profitable those tools, data collection tools are to tech companies that they're using? It just really varies company by company, right? You know, like companies like, for example, Palantir, they don't sell data, right? They just analyze it. Um, When then you have companies like Thomson Reuters that, you know, have certain contracts with ICE, certain contracts with police departments, certain contracts with different types of agencies in the private sector. So it's kind of hard to come up with a concrete number given all of that. Right. Definitely understandable. But uh, I imagine it's probably the the fact that they're doing it, it probably means that it is uh, fairly, fairly lucrative for them. Um, right now, though, it's time for a really quick break to hear from some of our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to, I'm not going to start in with the questions now, but something to think about. And also for our listeners, I'm going to start talking about other places where data is being taken from or scraped from, and that's social media. So right now is time for a quick break to hear from our sponsors. I'm speaking today with Jacinta Gonzalez from Miente about how tracking technology is being used, and it's being used to target specific groups within populations, not only in the U.S., but also throughout the world. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the Privacy Professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as show uh, topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, and also through my PrivacyGuidance.com website. Please stay with us. We will be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, research, report writing, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyguidance.com. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyguidance.com for help and answers to your questions. 
the Privacy Security Brainiacs team wants everyone responsible for security, privacy, and compliance to stay up to date with the latest news, risks, and security and privacy practices. Check out their growing library of topics, not offered by others. Privacy Security Brainiacs also wants every business to perform automated risk assessments, which are free or value-priced for all types of security and privacy topics. You need to find out more about Privacy Security Brainiacs. Visit PrivacySecurityBrainiacs.com. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold. I'm speaking today with Jacinta. Gonzalez from Miente about how tracking technology is being used, targeting specific groups within populations in the U.S. and throughout the world, and also the related privacy risks and considerations that we all need to, to keep in mind. And with regard to the data being used, um, you know, in the report, and I referenced a couple of reports before we went to break, but those reports indicate that Palantir is building ICE's case management software, um, which basically is tech that's allowing the agents to look uh, through a wide variety of databases throughout the country. Anyway, it indicates the data is being scraped from social media sites. And I think a lot of folks would find that very concerning given the fact that a lot of people spend basically all day (laughs) communicating on their social media sites. So can you provide an overview for the type of social media sites where the data is being taken from? You know, what what we know is that that ICE has a contract through Thundercat Technology that really basically serves as a front for Thomson Reuters Special Services that has about eight analysts that are working with ICE um, in their target to, to figure out their targeting operations that are helping them scrape social media uh, data to be able to use for, for their raids. So we know that they, have, they are able to look through Facebook, your searches on Google, LinkedIn, Pinterest, Tumblr, Instagram, Flickr, MySpace, Twitter. Um, so really, any social media platform that you use, we know is is accessible to ICE and they use it in their operations. So they both have this contract to have these eight social media analysts that are kind of sitting in their offices helping them through things. But then we also know that ICE many times does it on their own, right? Um, you know, we've had ICE agents that will, you know, 
look at people's Facebook profiles. We'll use that when trying to prosecute people. So overall, we know that social media is one of the places where ICE is u- one of the things that ICE is using to surveil our community. You know, what worries me about that, too, besides the, the obvious worries about having data taken from social media, is that there are so many fake um, social media sites now that are being created, and they're used for catfishing, they're used for social engineering, they're used uh, for other types of, you know, identity frauds. So it's uh, it concerns me that there would be government agencies depending upon data found on social media to begin with um, to take actions when perhaps some of the sites that were set up were set up to represent someone uh, that wasn't actually that person to begin with. It seems like a really big danger to depend upon data that might not even uh, be legitimate. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly concerning. Um, and we've actually, there there have been other times where the Department of Homeland Security has also tried to use social media monitoring as a way of predicting certain types of behavior and use it to determine whether or not someone should be granted a visa. So for we know that that's incredibly dangerous and also can easily lead to censorship, can easily lead to violations of people's fundamental um, human rights. And so it's it's something that um, you know police departments and the Department of Homeland Security continue to try to play with and use in different ways. Um, and the other thing that I would say that that's really concerning that folks should be aware of is there's a company called Clearview AI that offers facial recognition technology. And the thing that makes this company different is that they have literally scraped the internet for all of our pictures to be able to use those images in facial recognition technology. You know, this is something that previously other companies like Google had refused to do because they knew what type of abuse it could lead to. And now companies like Clearview AI have contracts directly with ICE, which means that when ICE is running a facial recognition scan through Clearview, they're actually able to access any picture that they scraped off of the internet, which is why companies like Facebook or Instagram have actually sued Clearview because of this practice, but it's still happening anyway. Wow, and what's so concerning about that too, from my uh, systems engineering background, I'm concerned about the use of uh, facial recognition and how it depends upon artificial intelligence anyway, because the rate of error with artificial intelligence can be very high. So it just seems like there would be, you know, some false arrests or some false accusations based upon errors that that um, actually occur as a result of the the data collection or the use of the AI. Have you, do you have any um, examples of errors that have been identified as a result of the use of facial recognition or anything that Clearview AI has been doing? You know, I think that there's, there's two levels of concern. Obviously, there's concern around accuracy, as you're describing, and I know there was a huge case out of Detroit not too long ago. I'm not familiar whether or not they use Clearview or not. I think it was a different program um, where someone was arrested based off of false information from facial recognition technology. So as you're saying, these types of mistakes, and this 
you know, gentleman was arrested in front of his children, you know, was treated with, with tremendous disrespect and a tremendous aggression on the hands of the police, um, you know, and, and he's continued to fight back. But it does show that there are issues with that. But, you know, when things are actually very effective, there's also tremendous concern. Because what we've seen over and over again is that ICE, as a policing agency, is completely rogue and unaccountable, right? There is no congressional oversight. It really is a police force at the hands or at the disposal of the president. And so, you know, when ICE agents have this type of technology at their fingerprints, it, at, at their fingertips, it literally means they can walk into a bar, see a woman, take her picture, and find out all of the information on her. So the ability for abuse um, and misuse of this technology, given that there are no parameters and no guidelines and no accountability from these police forces, is really terrifying, um, whether it's you know accurate or not. So is that what the Clearview AI uh, tool can do? So let's say I had that tool on my smartphone, and I went into the bar, like you said, and I saw somebody, and I took a photo. Would I just take that photo and run it through that tool to see more about that person? Are you saying it's that easy? Yes, it's that easy. And they can take up all of the pictures that they scrape from the internet. So when you think about it, like traditionally police departments will use facial recognition and they have to compare it against the data set that they have. So, you know, maybe they have a data set of mugshots or maybe they, you know, get a warrant and ask the Office of Motor Vehicles to check. But with this type of technology, it just kind of lets them have access to everything without any, any um, yeah, checks and balances and without having to get any sort of, you know, warrant from a judge or anything like that. Wow. So they have not only the images, and we talked about how there's also data from other sources that's just about addresses and utility bills and uh, so on. But what about all of the videos that, you know, there's a ton of videos, not just that people post knowingly online, but from like closed circuit TVs or surveillance cameras, um, audio from the Amazon types of devices or Google uh, devices. Uh, are those types of, is that type of data part of these big databases as well that's, that's used in creating these profiles of it, individuals? You know, more and more in cities across the country, the use of surveillance footage and surveillance cameras and having sort of a centralized location where that's being analyzed is coming up more and more. Different programs and different technologies are used to analyze all of that and to be able to identify not only faces, but objects as well as they're moving throughout a city. But, you know, the, the system for CCTV cameras is basically expanding throughout the U.S. and is definitely something that we want to look more into because it's so concerning how much it's growing. Right, right. Oh, gosh. So I know a lot of listeners in my audience, and I have a very diverse listener base. I know some of them, they're going to say, uh, well, such surveillance is necessary to catch terrorists and criminals and lawbreakers. I actually went out uh, into some various news outlets such as Fox Network, Opinion Shows, and Breitbart 
just to see, you know, what folks thought about um, these surveillance tools and how they're being used, especially for surveilling immigrants and others who weren't from the U.S., And so, you know, I saw that these statements were being made. Well, this is just necessary to catch terrorists and criminals and lawbreakers. So how would you respond to the folks who defend the the tools uh, by saying this? You know, after after 9-11, when the Department of Homeland Security was formed, they really used this language around protecting the homeland to justify a lot of the way that they conducted enforcement. And so, you know, ICE as an agency is particularly an expert at this, of using criminalizing language to justify the human rights abuses that they're doing and to justify deportations. So in a lot of cases, what we'll see is they'll say, oh, well, that's Homeland Security investigations. They are in charge of criminal prosecutions and criminal investigations, and that's why they need this type of surveillance. But then when you actually look at what they're doing, it turns out that their criminal investigations are workplace rates and actually going after people that are, you know, again, like in Mississippi, they did a huge workplace operation They said that everyone they were arresting was, you know, and they use very dehumanizing, um, criminalizing language. And then you realize that people's great crime was actually working at a poultry plant, Um, you know, and for that reason, they use that as an excuse to leave children, in many cases, without both of their parents. And so I think we have to be very critical about the language that is being used, particularly when it's so political and when it's actually meant to dehumanize and criminalize people to justify this level of violence against them. But then the other thing that's I think important to note is that many times surveillance technology is in a a first instance created and designed for war zones, right? Mm -hmm. It's created for wars abroad, then very quickly brought to the US through a militarized border So many times the surveillance technologies are then used on the border with Mexico. And then as soon as that's kind of normalized, they're brought in and used by police departments or by agencies like ICE. And so for us, really, the warning to everyone is that they were always going to use these technologies first on people that they, one, have dehumanized or people that they see as other, whether that's immigrants Black people, brown communities, you know, poor communities across the U.S. But very quickly, that's expanded and that's used on everyone, right? So we can see, for example, you know, the way that Border Patrol was acting as it was harassing protesters in Portland not too long ago. You know, if this is the type of violence and these are the types of surveillance strategies that they used against white moms in Portland, imagine how they're acting with, you know, brown moms in the border, so we really have to understand that this it, it starts off gradually, but as things are normalized, it starts to impact the entire population. Um, and, you know, for that reason, it's important for all of us to get involved in stopping this. Yes. Well, and in fact, you were detained a couple of years ago, right? And, and you're a USA citizen. Um, what data was used to justify detaining you and and how did that impact you because I think it's important for our listeners to understand a first-hand account of how this impacts a person you know I I think that my my story is more of a sign of how unaccountable and rogue 
ICE is as an agency than in terms of the level of surveillance. Okay. Um, what happened in my case is I was arrested at a protest um, and taken to the jail in Maricopa County, the Fourth Avenue jail um, that in those days was run by Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who is one of the most notorious anti-immigrant sheriffs and racist sheriffs in, in U.S. history. Um, and just because of my last name, um, I was interrogated by ICE agents. And, you know, I have been organizing in the immigrant rights field for, for 10 plus years. Um, and so I knew my rights and I, you know, requested to have an attorney pleasant and refused to answer questions without an attorney. And simply for doing that, um, you know, speaking to them politely, speaking to them in English, just for that reason, they actually put a hold request on me. And even though the other two protesters were released that night, I was held overnight in solitary and then transferred to immigration custody the next day. But to me, what's the most frustrating is that even though as a result of that abuse um, and that violation of my rights, I was actually able to sue Sheriff Joe Arpaio and actually get to an agreement and, and win a settlement. But I was actually never able to sue ICE agents because of a lot of decisions that the Supreme Court has made it makes it almost impossible to sue ICE agents when they commit these type of abuses. And that's why we call them a rogue agency. That's why we say that they're unaccountable because literally is it, it's almost impossible to bring them to justice even when they violate their own rules, even when it's against a US citizen. So again, imagine how they treat people who they know they're gonna be able to deport um, and in many ways like kind of wash away the evidence in that way. Um, and so that's what really kind of brings up this issue that we have to understand structurally and in real life how these things are being used. Because if these tools are given to police departments, you know, whether it's your local police department or a federal agency that are abusing people's rights, these types of powerful tools are just gonna make those types of things worse. Yes, well, and not only make them worse, but it seems like it will um, make people fear to do what they actually have a right to do, like in our upcoming election in November. So these surveillance activities, how are they impacting uh, the, the groups that are being surveilled who, who are U.S. citizens who have a right to vote? Is, is this surveillance, do you think it's uh, causing or going to lead to voter suppression? You know, I, I think overall what we've seen is, is this type of surveillance by police departments is, you know, being used as a way of attacking movements and attacking organizers. You know, for example, we've seen many of the folks who have participated in recent protests have been targeted by their local police departments. And in many different cases, they're using different types of surveillance to do that, right? Sometimes it's going through social media, sometimes it's around, you know, doing surveillance on the spot, sometimes it's around figuring out social networks. But what we've seen time and time again is that it is used in that way to try to silence people. And, you know, when you create that kind of climate, it impacts everything. And so it'll impact protesting, it will impact whether or not people are willing to come forward and file complaints um, against different agencies but also it's going to impact the way people approach the election. Um, and I think particularly given all of these conversations around voting by mail, um, there's a lot of folks that are just incredibly nervous about giving up their information or giving out their address or their details 
And so we are really concerned that that's going to lead to more voter uh, suppression um, and disillusionment in the election. What do you think that tech companies, where all of this data is being generated from and who uh, are providing in many cases this data to different types of vendors who have these tools like Palantir and, and Clearview AI and so on, what do you believe the tech companies need to do to be accountable and transparent about the personal data that they're collecting and how they're using it? Well, I mean, I think there's two things here. I think there is kind of going going and figuring out what the ethics are around the origins of the data. And I do think that we actually need to be pushing for stronger laws that will actually protect that information for people and give people ownership over their own information. But we also have the issue of any company at this moment that has contracts with ICE is actually allowing for those human rights violations to continue to happen. So I think part of our our advocacy has also been aimed at making sure people understand the human rights impacts of working with ICE as a business and also the implications that that can have for a business as investors are looking at, you know, whether or not you're, you know, if, if you invest in fossil fuel, people know that that's wrong. If you invest in tobacco, people know that that's wrong. And so, you know, for us, it's, it's important for people to understand that investing in ICE is equally wrong um, and should be stopped. So in those reports that I referenced earlier, um, just so our listeners who might be curious to read them closer, do those reports, like, do those talk about the, the types of tech companies that collect and share this type of data or what would people find in those reports? Yeah, I would really encourage um, your listeners to go to our website, notechforice.com. And under the resource section, you'll find a ton of different information. So we have, like you were describing before, a comprehensive report on the entire deportation machinery and the tech and data companies that are part of that. We have, you know, reports specifically on Palantir. Um, We have also tools that people can use. For example, if you are a student and you want to be organizing on your campus, again, some of these tech companies coming to recruit um, and want to talk about the roles of universities and and making sure to kind of cut off this talent pipeline into some of these most detrimental companies, there's a toolkit there for you. Um, If you are a local community organization and you want to try to pass a local policy to protect people's data or to cut off information from um, ICE or to make sure that you understand what surveillance technology your police department has, we also have a policy toolkit there that you can use. Um, We also have a comic book and a workshop facilitation guide for people to be able to use to have conversations with people about these things. You know, we know that many times it's a lot of information. It's really overwhelming. And so what we did in this comic book is actually break it into four chapters. So one, people can understand what data is and how the data economy works, how police is using data and and technology, how ICE is using data and technology, and also how we organize against these things. Um, And we also have a bunch of videos and graphics and different things like that that people can access to be able to use in their organizing. So there's tons of stuff there. There's also petitions that people can plug into, webinars that we've offered. So, you know, the website is really kind of a a one-stop shop 
um, where, where people can kind of come and learn about these things. Great. Well, you know, our time has gone by so quickly. We're, we're down almost to the end of our hour, but in, in about two minutes time, what is the, the really primary point you want to leave with our listeners today about how surveillance technology is being used on targeted uh, portions of the population and how it impacts their lives? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just important to really grasp the full the full breadth of what's happening. You know, we don't have adequate, you know, data privacy laws, right? We actually don't even have the right framework to really be conceptualizing this. So what that means is that we have these huge tech and data companies that have access to more of our information um, and know more about us than we know about them. Um, and when this these types of companies then partner up with unaccountable police agencies like ICE or local police departments, the, the, real, the real life impact on marginalized communities like immigrants, like black communities, like brown communities is felt really, really severely. And so we have to really understand not only the privacy of the data, but also the real implications of how it's used when it's put in the wrong hands. Thank you so much for being my guest today. I learned a lot, and I know my listeners did, too. No, thank you so much for for the invitation and and for this amazing space that you have to be able to talk about these important topics. So, yeah, really, really happy to have been able to be here with you and, and, yeah, looking forward to staying in touch. Yes, definitely. So today I've been speaking with Yahinta Gonzalez from Mayente about how tracking technology is used and how it's being used to target and take actions against specific groups within populations in the U.S. and also uh, throughout the world, and also some of the related privacy risks and considerations. And, you know, I have, like I mentioned in my intro, I've asked some of these organizations that we covered in our our conversation uh, if they wanted to be on my show to answer questions. So I'll put that out there again. If uh, they want to answer my questions about the data and how it's collected and used, why get in touch with me. Uh, Please send feedback, all of you, about this show. Would you like to hear more about this topic? Just let me know. Uh, You can get in touch with me using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. And if you can't make my scheduled debut show on the first Saturday of each month, you will always be able to listen to all of the recordings of all my past shows. And you can get to them through iTunes, Mobile Play, Stitcher.com, uh, tune in and whatever your favorite news app is. In addition to, of course, voiceamerica.com business channel website. Also, if you need help with any information, security or privacy activities, get in touch with me. You need an expert witness. I'm doing a very interesting case right now. Get in touch with me for that. My YouTube channel is Privacy Professor. Until our next show, please Ask those that you do business with, who you work for, um, or just organizations that you know has collected your data. Ask them if they are doing all they can to secure the information you've entrusted to them. Ask them who they're sharing your data with. As hopefully you've heard today, they might be sharing it very widely, uh, more widely than you realize. Be privacy aware in the month ahead. 
Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live the first Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next time, stay safe.